Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to PillowCube.com and getting one for yourself. Well, we started as an aircraft company. We were building an aircraft and we quickly realized that we had 200 competitors, many of whom were better funded than us because we were maybe late getting started at the game. But we recognized that our strength was in propulsion and we thought they're going to need this propulsion because we don't believe what they believe in, this unobtainium batteries. And that gave us a place, a platform now where we're really confident in our marketplace, we're behind. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today's a fun episode. We've got Richard Kane, CEO of Verajet, back on the show, and he's going to be co-hosting one of his friends for us, Mr. Eric Lindbergh. Eric, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. Yeah, you bet. Richard, when I was saying it'd be fun to co-host some episodes together, Eric was at the top of your list. Why? So Eric has led innovation in the electric aircraft industry. Huge impacts to you know environmental concerns, noise concerns, but more about changing the entire way people travel, the way people even think about travel. And it's going to be monumental. And Eric has had the vision to see this and has had the capability to push it along. And it's just an incredible story. I love it. Well, Eric, do you want to give us just a, a little bit about your background? And then let's especially focus on Vertigo. Okay, sure. I, I mean, it, I guess it wouldn't be complete if I didn't mention the XPRIZE. In, in 1996, I was really fortunate to be a part of a small group of people in St. Louis under the arch, along with Dan Golden, the head of NASA, and about 20 Apollo and other astronauts. And we announced the largest cash prize in history, the, the $10 million, on, I'm sorry, X prize. It was to be used, the $10 million would be given to the first team to field a spaceship that could fly three people into the atmosphere, return safely and do it again within two weeks. And, and that whole idea, which was slightly crazy and should have failed, was all sort of with this eye to create and jumpstart the private spaceflight industry. And did I mention it should have failed? It should have failed. <laughs> 
We spent a lot of years actually struggling in different ways. And you can read all about it in the book, How to Make a Spaceship. That's a New York Times bestseller by Julian Guthrie. $50,000 Fridays, you know, always raising money, trying to get the word out. But one of the things that I did that helped the X Prize was in 2002, when we were down to about a half a person in the office and we were shutting down, I retraced my grandfather's footsteps across the Atlantic. And in a small single engine airplane, flew for 17 hours and seven minutes. And I survived the flight, which was my prime directive. But better than that, I was able to raise a half a billion media impressions. That's before social media came about. And a million dollars cash and a million dollars in kind, all of this focused on the future of flight, the X Prize, the space flight. And it, and it did jumpstart the industry that we now see with Virgin Galactic and um, Blue Origin and, and Musk and, and SpaceX, you know, providing flights to the government, to the public, whoever can buy tickets almost can go fly there. And, and that was incredibly empowering. So to get, to be a part of a small team of people who got Spaceship One hanging in the Air and Space Museum next to the Spirit of St. Louis was really empowering to us. We thought, well, we changed the way the world thinks about spaceflight. How do we do that again? And I'm not really a rocket scientist. So I set my sights on back on aviation. You know, I love this industry. I've been a pilot for most of my life a flight instructor and, and worked in various capacities in the industry. The space geeks are, are, you know, they just have much bigger heads than I do. But I thought, how do we do this? And as Richard mentioned earlier, I thought, I'm not an electric engine engineer. I haven't built any airplanes yet. How do I jumpstart this industry? So I started offering prizes. We called it the Lindbergh Electric Aircraft Prize. And we, we gave this award for people demonstrating excellence at various air shows. And we started some advocacy organizations and, and other efforts to really try to push this industry into existence. In other words, clean, quiet flight. Okay, that was you a know, long mouthful. Any, no, uh, any questions? I liked it. Yeah, I think maybe the first thing before we go on is, you know, I I love Peter Diamantis' books and his podcasts and videos and stuff. And I'm not sure that everyone realizes just how great prizes can be for spurring innovation. You know, I've, I've watched a few of your videos and I like in one of them where you're saying, you know, this guy did so much for space. He's like, not not my grandpa, Charles Lindbergh, the other guy. Can you Can you tell that? Sure. Yeah. You know, so most of the world knows about my grandfather's 1927 nonstop flight from New York to Paris. It, 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 it was the biggest media event ever when communications nearly instantaneously traveled around the world. And that was the first time in history that had happened. And he became the most famous person on the planet, according to Scott Berg, the author, for 10 years straight. That's pretty extraordinary. People don't realize that he was flying across the Atlantic to win a prize. So that idea that spurred him into that really was this carrot, if you will. Someone was dangling the carrot out in front and it was $25,000 to be awarded to the first team that flew between the cities of New York and Paris in either direction. All other worries in your care or all other details, I think was what the, the instructions were from Raymond Ortig. And Ortig was a guy who owned a hotel in New York and a hotel in Paris. And he wanted to facilitate people to stay in his hotels in New York or Paris. So that was a, a truly an extraordinary thing that he did. And he put it up in 1919. He had to reinstate it because it, it took a while for it to be won. 
And depending on who you, who you talk to, either seven or nine teams spent $400,000 trying to win that $25,000 prize. So Raymond Ortiz leveraged his money incredibly by a factor of 16. And all of that research and development went into long distance air travel. So, so that really was the template, I think, that Peter used when he came up with the XPRIZE idea and, and that we use today with the XPRIZE Foundation to solve the other grand challenges facing humanity that we, we find a problem that isn't being addressed by industry or governments, and we apply prize philanthropy to that. And it, it causes people to come out of the woodwork with solutions, sometimes out of a garage or a tattoo parlor. And they come up with these extraordinary innovations that, that supersede the state of the art. And that is extraordinary. That's, that's one of the ways that you can really spur innovation. Well, speaking about innovation, tell people what, to tell people what Vertigo does. <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned, you know, really setting my sights back on aviation. And I saw my first electric aircraft prototype in 2008. And that sort of, it, it, it flipped a switch in my mind. And, and I thought, oh, that's how we address the problems that we're facing in general aviation. And we, and we create clean, quiet flight that would be sustainable for the future. And so I recognized that I wasn't the guy to build the aircraft. So I thought, how do I, how do I really push this industry so that I can be flying in a clean, quiet, sustainable aircraft? And I mentioned many different efforts that, that we undertook, including giving prizes. I started building an aircraft with Dr. Pat Anderson's college team down at Embry-Riddle, an electric aircraft, so that kids could learn how to build an electric aircraft and fly it. During that process, we realized that we had all the technology to put together a flying car, if you will. A lot of people don't like that term because it doesn't have anything to do with a car, except we're all familiar with cars basically an EV tall aircraft. It takes off vertically and lands vertically. So EV tall, electric vertical takeoff and landing. And so we started Vertigo Aero and put together the team. We're based down in Daytona on the Eagle Flight Research Center Research Lab. And we've got a team down there building hybrid electric propulsion systems because we see as much as I really drank the battery powered Kool-Aid Batteries are really only progressing at a, at a very slow rate in terms of energy density. And we realized that we needed a bridge. So in order to fly aircraft at really robust commercial levels so that you can get four flights out of an aircraft flying across town, 20, 25 miles, and do that four times during peak traffic times, you needed a hybrid system, not all battery system. And so that was sort of the, the foundation of Vertigo Aero. And, and we are, we're doing quite well right now. I think a lot of the industry bought this Kool-Aid I mentioned that all battery aircraft could be commercially viable. And I think in the short run, you can make an all electric aircraft fly and even do some interesting missions, but they're very short distance and they don't have real good reserves. So in aviation, the reason why aviation is such a safe industry is that we need to get to our existing airport and then be able to, to fly to an alternate if the weather is bad or we don't like the landing or there's a moose on the runway, that sort of thing. We can go somewhere else and land. So that's what Vertigo Aero is all about. And we're, we, we like to say we're powering the electric flight rev revolution. 
And we're proud to say that we're now in four different aircraft designs in, in this industry that's emerging called Advanced Aircraft Mobility. Did I say that right? AAM? And, and, and what that means is it's not just electric vertical takeoff and landing or eVTOL. We have fixed customers building fixed wing distributed electric aircraft. So all the propellers are arrayed across the leading edge of the wing. And that enables them to do super short takeoff and landing or e-stall. We also have cargo carrying aircraft. We also have passenger carrying aircraft and another novel one that I can't talk about and a few others in the wings because we have the ability to deliver the electrons that they need to build the aircraft that they want to design to and not wait for the next generation of batteries to come along and be certified and commercially viable. Well, as soon as Richard told me about you, I quickly emailed your video to my one partner that runs the real estate fund with me because he's been watching electric cars and molars and stuff like for 15 years. Like he just loved that industry. <laughs> and he's like, wow, that looks like it's actually going to happen, you know? So it seems pretty exciting. You know, I think it, it really is happening now and we're extremely interested in the frothiness of the market. As Richard mentioned, there's a lot of money flowing in and property speculation is one of those. I think this, this industry is thriving in spite of the overall aviation economy. And so it's a very exciting time in the industry for us. So um, it's absolutely my hope that Veritrek gets to operate one or more of the fleet types that Eric is going to power. I mean, that's part of how this all fits together. It would be a phenomenal win for us. Well, that's what I want to talk about next. You know, we got to hear quite a bit about Verjet, and it seemed amazing to me, but what was it about Verjet that impressed you, Eric? Oh, well, Richard, <laughs> he's the secret uh -oh. weapon. R Richard, Richard has a way of being able to see things well before they happen. So he predicts things well in advance and technologies, et cetera. And I think, it, you know, maybe he's the one who mentioned it, but he got in a little too early in some of these technologies and now they're coming back around. And Verajet was this brilliant example of how the industry will change through the use of technology and, and coding and AI. And, you know, those, the combination of those along with an, an aircraft that's unparalleled in terms of its sort of economic operating costs and its, I won't say sustainability, it's, it's, it's much more efficient than any other aircraft of its type and can take a lot of business away from a lot of other charter operators, companies, aircraft. I think that combination along with Richard at the helm was absolutely brilliant. And, and let me just say one more thing. These things aren't easy. I told you XPRIZE, we probably should have failed. It was sheer force of will, not just by Peter Diamandis, but by myself, by Greg Marinak and all these other people that came in, the Ansaris who eventually came in to, you know, back us. If it weren't for that sort of indomitable focus, and not all of us could last that long. So we took breaks and did other businesses and other things. But the combination of that vision and, and all of us putting it forth made it made it survive. And, and Vertigo has been like that. And I think Richard's business is also, all these are startups, right? And they're, they take that incredible amount of passion on a day-to-day -day basis that, you know, maybe you can get a weekend off, but not two in a row. You just got to go, go, go until it works. Well, Richard, what's a question that you think listeners would probably want to hear an answer from Eric about? 
Well, this one is going to put him on the spot and he can't answer it. But the question that I would like to know would be what manufacturers we should be looking at to acquire fleets from. But that's not really a fair answer. But but who's out ahead in the electric aircraft world? You know, I think you'll have a little bit of time before they are certified and commercially ready. So on the order of several years, but I would certainly look at at Jump as an eVTOL passenger carrying aircraft. The reason I would do so is because it's, I'm sorry, Jaunt Arrow. Did I say Jump? (laughs) There are too many aircraft companies in this industry. There's some 300 aircraft companies in this industry. So pardon me. I would look at Jaunt. And and the reason is they've been flying, they're using the old Carter Copter design. So this is an aircraft that's been proven. It's flying for actually more than a decade in in prototype status. And and as they move to the new advanced air mobility industry, they've got the winning platform when it comes to commercial viability, in my humble opinion. Is this the one here that looks a little bit like a helicopter and an airplane together? I think yes. it, is this the right one? Yes. And it, Interesting. it, it, it is. Other, it's, you, go ahead. Oh, no. The other question I would ask. So it seems to me that hybrid electric setups could burn biofuel, Jet A. The engines on my planes can burn biofuel. It seems to me we have perhaps 100 million reasons to be more optimistic about availability of biofuel. And I was wondering if you could touch on some of those aspects as well. Yeah, the Vertigo Aero system is uses a diesel engine for the generator. And so we can burn Jet A or biofuels as needed and as available. So just like the the, the Vision Jet that you're using with Verajet, we have that flexibility and it's available globally. One of the things that we're looking at at the Lindbergh Foundation in, in our Forever Flight Alliance program is how do we make aviation infinitely sustainable? And with that, we're looking at chemical fuels and other methods of getting the fuels that can keep us flying. The problem is that, you know, we see these we have actually billions or maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars in fixed assets, aircraft that will be flying for the next 30 years. And so how do we do that and remove carbon from the atmosphere so that we make aviation sustainable for the lifetime of those those aircraft? So, so the whole sort of ecosystem, I should say, if we're able to solve these issues for aviation, which is hard, it's it's we're we're mass constrained and we need to be light as possible and, and we're energy intensive. If we can solve these issues in aviation, we can solve them in, in any industry. For people who maybe aren't as up to speed, what what are the most realistic bio biofuels or biodiesels at this point? I'm really not an expert in that area, so I can't really tell you, but I I do think that we have to look at biofuels that are not, you know, like palm oil taking, utilizing palm oil plantations as opposed to jungles. We need those. And so we need to be very careful about what we do use. And I can say that we're, we're sort of we have a fuel expert on board who pays more attention to those things. And, you know, even looking at ammonia and hydrogen as fuel sources is, is good for the long run. And that's probably the most I could tell you without getting into trouble on the biofuels. Sure. You know, I got a question that I, I'd love to hear both of your answers on. When you think about when you think about the aviation industry, even five years from now, what's something that that outsiders maybe don't realize is coming sooner than people realize. 
Eric, you want to go first and then we'll go to Richard? <laughs> well, I love this. In in five years, I think Verajet will be all across the country and in many places <laughs> in the world. And, and, and that is going to be an extraordinary shift because it's um, super efficient to go medium distances in this aircraft. And it's going to revolutionize the way people book and travel and the way that those resources get deployed. So that that in itself is extraordinary. And the ability to save tons and tons of carbon for each flight is, is one, but it's also money and money makes things go around as we all know. So that's, that's, a, that's a definite five-year forecast. The other thing is that we're going to start seeing autonomous cargo delivery and perhaps short takeoff and landing cargo delivery from rooftops of or parking lots of warehouses. So that middle mile logistics is going to change and we're going to be able to get packages from Amazon much, much quicker. So there's this sort of practical piece there. We're also going to start seeing on-demand taxi, air taxi service in rural mobility areas. And and eventually, I think the longest, the hardest one to crack is going to be the um, urban air mobility markets. So the being able to call up on your, your Uber or Lyft app and aircraft and fly from the San Juan Islands to Bellevue, Washington, for example, over water or over traffic or from Manhattan out to JFK, saving you lots of time. So I think within five years, we're going to be seeing that industry starting. It'll be more, the cargo is going to come on first. And I think that urban air mobility is going to kind of come on last because there's more regulation around that, around densely populated areas. And the reason for that is safety. And it's just going to take a little bit of time till these systems are completely robust. And as Uncle Boeing made flying 10 to the minus ninth safe for us, they really don't crash. We hear about the crashes, but they really don't crash as frequently as we do in cars. Let's put it that way. Well, if I can just manage to get super rich, I'll be able to take the air taxi from my house over to the Hebrew airport. It's about 20 minutes away. That's where all the, you know, the Park City billionaires park their jets, right? But I'll just go catch one of Richard's Vera jets and my wife will actually go on it because it has the parachute and she'll she'll feel safe. So I'm I'm looking forward to this now. We just need to work on the part about me being rich enough for all that. Richard, what's what's one thing that Eric didn't bring up that you think is maybe closer than the general public realizes? The, the autonomy. So the plane that we fly doesn't even have a first officer position. There's nothing in the training or the certification that allows for a first officer. It doesn't need one. The first officer is an AI. It's a single pilot airplane. And the passengers can land the airplane autonomously at the touch of a button. So they're no longer relying on the pilot. And this is a big change for the industry. For the last few weeks, I've been flying the CEOs of industry-leading charter operators and brokers demonstrating these single pilot safety features. And I've now been invited to speak at our industry's conference on single pilot safety in that context. And everyone completely gets it. They, they press the I believe button. One of the largest brokers in the world is flying his friends and family with a single pilot. They all understand it. They all agree the plane feels the safest they've ever been in an airplane. However, the insurance companies, the corporations, the end users can't get their heads around one pilot. So we're flying a second pilot who's just there to monitor the first pilot who's monitoring the computers. It doesn't make any sense. Well, you can go to China, fly with Ehang, and there's no pilot. It's fully autonomous. And so we're going to have to fly, you know, 100 million packages error-free before we start flying people 
in the US, but that's not going to be the case in other places. To your point about the cost of this, Uber will tell you that Uber Elevate may be cheaper than Uber Ground by the time they're done. So the, the, the per mile cost may be much less and the speed's phenomenal. So this is a transformation that, you know, people are going to have to get their heads around Robo Uber when Elon Musk's Model 3 fleet that he wouldn't allow you to purchase at the end of your lease because he wants them to be Robo Ubers. When they come and get you autonomously, maybe that'll crack open the idea that your plane is also autonomous. Maybe not. But that that's people are going to have a tough time getting their heads around this. We went from three-person flight crews to two. FedEx, Verijet, we're pushing one. FedEx for packages, Verijet for people. And, and we're certified for it. But that acceptance is slow. About 30% of our flights are with two pilots. And, and we're happy to do it. But it's, again, not necessary. So zero pilots is going to be uh, mind-blowing for people. So probably yeah. safer. And I, I sad to say that as a pilot. But, but, <laughs> but uh, uncomfortable for a lot of people. Interesting. You know, maybe uh, another question for both of you. Let's go back to you, Eric. You know, the business media and the conferences, we love to talk about innovation. I mean, it's it's such an overword. It's such an overused word. It almost doesn't mean anything. Sometimes it's like anything new is now innovation or anything I say is innovation is now innovation, whatever. Right. But, but, you know, we love these like Elon Musk stories of he almost lost it all on the last rocket and, you know, like the, the drama and stuff. Right. But like, you know, we have all these like hardcore special ops guys on the show, like some of the guys from even the classified units, right? And they're like, yeah, it's not quite like the movies, like, you know, with the movie show happening, you know, life's, life's, a, little, life's a little less uh, glamorous when you're doing it for real, you know? Can you talk about one of the lessons that you've learned for actually staying alive during innovation? Like what's, what's something that maybe the business press doesn't, doesn't, doesn't always get covered in the romanticized stories? Yeah. You know, I think it, no, no disrespect for the special ops guys, but boy, was it intense doing that startup. I think, you know, the most important thing, and it probably parallels the, the special ops guys is you, you just need to be flexible. And for someone who's stiff in his joints, isn't very flexible in business, you just have to be able to, to change your course by a couple of degrees relatively frequently, in a, especially in a fast-moving business. And aviation is fast-moving and competitive and has weather involved and things like that. So, so I think that ability to pivot, if not even pivoting 180 degrees, it's pivoting 15 degrees or 20 degrees because you have an advantage. And I think that's that's what special ops guys probably do in in spades better than anyone. They're able to go, okay, here's the parameters. This one means I die. This one means everyone else dies. This means, oh, we survive and go there. And that's kind of like running a business. And and these things, these shots across the bow, to use a metaphor, they come frequently. And, and a good special ops guy or CEO like Richard will go, oh, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to address that. And they, and they get up early and they work it and they, and they, they maintain control of the ship, even if it isn't headed for the same destination. That's the important key. You know, that, that's such a good point. I, I got to go over and teach the Nigerian Special Operations Command some leadership courses. And I, I brought a 25-year Navy SEAL with me to go team teach it back when I was at the Arbinger Institute. And he used to say all the time, be Gumby. It was, you know, that little, like the green stick thing as a kid. I don't even know. Was that a cartoon? I don't even know where that came from. 
but that was their that to your point about being flexible like that's what they would say to each other all the time be gumby be, yeah. be, be flexible make, be bendable be you know adapt adapt and overcome right makes perfect sense and and as a ceo in in business or in experimenting i think even thomas edison had those sort of you know they did a thousand light bulbs before they got one that worked and then the kid just was taking it upstairs and dropped it and smashed it <laughs> you know and so they're they have to do it again and edison says no you're taking it up because you're not going to drop that thing again you know there's all kinds of lessons there but without that flexibility and that adaptability you're gonna stop you're gonna give up and you're gonna go home back to whatever it is what you were doing before and yeah, you so see what's, that, that difference what's a, sto- what's a story of you doing that at vertigo and then we'll go to richard next well we started as an aircraft company we were building an aircraft and we quickly realized that we had 200 competitors many of whom were better funded than us because we were maybe late getting started at the game but we recognized that our strength was in propulsion and we thought they're going to need this propulsion because we don't believe what they believe in this unobtainium batteries and that gave us a place a platform now where we're really confident in our marketplace we're behind four aircraft companies so we're powering that industry and it was you know it was hard to give up our baby that's what i was going to ask is any advice for other CEOs when they they realize, you know, you're dealing with constant uncertainty, another similarity of special ops guys, right? But dealing with that uncertainty and there's all sorts of temptations to rationalize not giving up your baby. Any thoughts about getting to that place of radical <laughs> self-honesty and going like, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't emotionally what I want to do, but I, you know, I don't think I'd be responsible if I didn't do it or, you know, like, how do you navigate that? Hopefully you have some good advisors on hand and you have good, you've chosen wise business partners because it's a, it, it is kind of a marriage and you go through all kinds of ups and downs. And if it isn't strong, it's going to come apart. So, so you really need that, that trust and and another let me just say a difficult piece to get through we had a guy advising us who had plenty of money to back us and he was very interested in finding us money because he liked the sexy aircraft design and he went away when we went to propulsion because he couldn't sell it or he didn't have the passion to sell it so it was you know we were facing these sort of interesting you know decision points but in the end, we knew it was right. And we knew this industry was going to need a lot of electrons. And we knew how to provide them. And and that sort of belief in that process and the the the, the process we went through to validate that it was a no-brainer. It was hard up front because we all had this idea that we started with. But it made sense in the end. And I worked for a startup a long time ago with a guy who was really inflexible. He was an extraordinary of mind and character and he had all these details and the most detailed business plan you'd ever seen but he wasn't flexible and it failed several people tried to step in in the end but it was by then it was too late so be like gumby (laughs) i love it so richard what about you again people romanticize innovation and everybody likes to tell the cinderella story after cinderella you know gets the prince right but in the meantime what are what are some of the strategies that have worked for you to endure the uncertainty and and the the parts that we had to to pivot like a downhill skier through COVID 
I originally expected airlines to be funding my operations in exchange for very high quality trained pilots who are trained in a jet versus sort of a 1980s piston twin and trained with real avionics at jet speeds. And COVID hit and the airlines were decimated. And so that whole plan, you know, went south and we pivoted. We ended up working with family offices. I looked around and thought, who still needs to travel and examine deal flow and needs that mobility as part of their core business? And that was family offices. So that worked. But what's really been the secret for us is to have the right investors. I had some institutional people who, when COVID hit, said, keep your powder dry, don't spend a dime, shut down operations and hope you survive the next two years. I'm like, no, first of all, never let a crisis go to waste. And obviously COVID has a, a pretty big upside for personal transportation that's COVID safe. But, but second, we have people who love aviation, who love environmental causes, who do things like fund drone programs to find poachers to protect elephants and rhinos or fly seaplanes around endangered bays or all of these amazing things. And they flat out love the vision jet, the, the visibility, the smoothness. And our lead investor right now, we showed him how to land this jet in Napa. And he went all in. He wants to get a type rating. That's a pretty big hill to climb to be a jet pilot. He's not a pilot. And he just loves the whole idea. And then to have a solid business behind that. So to have the passion, the enthusiasm, but to be able to back it up with, this is a solid business. This is you know, going to change the way people fly. And it's, to simplify it, it's one pilot, one engine carbon fiber versus two, two in metal. And so we're a third of the operating cost. And, and you take that all together and then you make it about door to door at 300 miles an hour versus 75 and wrap it all in a NASA 25 year program. So the bad news, it took me 25 years to realize NASA's small aircraft transportation system. The good news is we're here. The material science, the AI, all of this technology converged. The ability to operate all weather to all these small airports and to do it safely and to see all the airplanes around you, all of that's in the last two years. And, and so we've been planning a long time to Eric's point about seeing where it's going. We helped drive some of it. I was proud to fund a Lindbergh Innovation Grant for pilot self-separation of aircraft about 15 years ago. I'd like to think we helped bring some of this about to clone X Prize. The easiest way to predict the future is to create it. So we're doing a mix of these things like the Leap Prize. But at the end of the day, don't be afraid to have some fun and show your passion for it and share that. And that motivates everyone else to go over and above to protect your vision keep that vision going, I guess articulating the vision and getting people to buy into it and love it is, is really the key that that's kept us together and kept us moving forward. Oh, I love it. You know, yeah. something, I don't know that I had really caught the vision. I was watching one of the Lindbergh Foundation videos, I believe. And Eric, maybe you can talk to this. You know, before your grandfather's flight, like airplanes were like for crazy people and stuntmen. And then afterwards they were like, it just like is this massive lever to all of a sudden become like legitimate and, and regular people. Can, can you talk about that? I mean, most of us don't have any context for that, right? Because it was 100 years ago. Oh, yeah. I think, well, there are some parallels with the, the emerging industries of today, but, but really not. It, I think people who flew in airplanes in my grandfather's day were called barnstormers and daredevils and flying fools, and they often crashed and killed themselves. After he flew across the Atlantic, they sort of went from these crazy daredevils to being pilots and passengers. And within a few years, there were more pilots, more 
more airplanes. There were transcontinental railroad and airline, and and we had sort of commercial transportation, and then soon after we had transatlantic flights, commercial flights. So it it really was an incredible shift in the world's perspective about what aviation could do. Could do. You could fly the mail. You could you know throw some leaflets out over a town or hop rides to make a living, and it went to this industry that we know of today where it's it's billions of dollars or maybe trillions of dollars and much of the world has flown on on an aircraft and it's and it's regular covid withstanding but that that shift was you know i think amazing and and if you think about what was a car in 1927 it was an old ford with wood spoke wheels maybe there was some metal but you had to crank it up to get it going. And they were maintenance hogs. They needed fixing all the time. If you had a road, you could ride on. And so, you know, I think it was extremely complex development time from that sort of rough horse and carriage buggy sort of time to, oh, now we're flying in the air as well as driving, as well as, you know, a few decades later flying into space. And, and now it's not that big of a leap, as Richard said, to start flying autonomously. In fact, we do it now. It's just the question of when is the public going to accept it and when are the regulators going to accept it and, and sort of become more normal. Yeah. You know, speaking of a small innovation, this is the out of, you know, I don't know, this may be like 500 episode 560 or 575 or something. This is the first time we've ever had it from a moving Tesla. So Richard, thanks for, thanks for being the innovation today. Oh, absolutely. It's, um, it's all electric so, and it's driving autonomously. It's like, you know, so, yeah. I liked it. And although I don't know why you returned from the Bahamas, I personally would probably have just stayed there. But anyway. Oh, it's because I have meetings in Nashville tomorrow. The Bahamas was amazing, and we are going to be serving the Bahamas in about 30 days, but it was my honor and privilege to be part of a flight of two where we examined the glide ratio of our jets, and basically, can you glide to land or an airport if you lose your one engine? And the answer was overwhelmingly yes. We have a 14.7 to one glide ratio. That's better than some custom-made gliders, and, and once we're at altitude, it wasn't just that we could glide to an airport. I could actually choose my fuel price and glide to the airport with the best fuel. So it was hilarious. It's just a total home run. And then we met phenomenal people out there, again, demonstrating the jet. We didn't plan to do that. I flew five different sets of demo flights and, and got a whole new set of investors, all of whom are from Canada. And now we're going to end up serving Canada because I went to the Bahamas and I was willing to share this enthusiasm so it, it just keeps snowballing you gotta watch out for those crazy connects they'll 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 trick you with their politeness you know you gotta watch out they're gonna pour maple syrup all over their bacon and everything so the the covid travel restrictions they're very polite but they're also very serious it's oh my gosh three my, three days mandatory quarantine yeah i talked to all my family back home in canada and my friends and they, they're they're feeling they're feeling the restrictions <laughs> a little cabin fever going on at home eric what's what's you know you guys have done a lot of interesting things at your company what's one of the things you're the most proud of you know um sticking it out i think that, that there's sort of a wild west element to this industry the advanced air mobility industry or electric aircraft industry and i think there there so many people came in with so many different ideas uber even the uber elevate idea 
it it helped to legitimize our industry but it also made everybody focus on all electric powered aircraft and you know having the fortitude to stick to our guns and say no that's not ready and at the rates it's actually progressing it's going to be 10 to 15 years before we're going to be able to do all electric aircraft for robust commercial missions we need something in between we need a bridge and all of this big money was betting in another direction and so i think maybe the thing i'm most proud of was sticking to our guns watching the science having advisors you know at argonne national labs who are really looking at how fast batteries are actually progressing and and holding to that in the face of all this mania and crazy you know hundreds of millions of dollars flowing into these interesting and you know good flying aircraft but that we believe will take longer to commercialize or will have a very specific niche that they can service for the first five to ten years and we'll be off to the races so i think that's probably what i'm most proud about it is interesting how hard it is for humans to stick with things that aren't popular do you know what i mean like it, we yeah. all we just really enjoy you know like warren buffett says you sure pay a high price for a cheery consensus you know like you know it's very hard to find a, a good value investment buying what's popular right and yeah. it's like there's such big rewards for doing the unpopular if you're right which is a big if right, right. there's such big rewards but it just feels so good to tell people what you're doing and have everybody say oh that's a great idea yeah right? well isn't it and yet it's not my favorite idea. I want to be all electric. I, I'm, I'm searching for the clean, green, quiet aircraft. And yet we chose to do the hybrid model because, because that's what we believe in. That's the science. What I want is all electric. And of course, any part of a hybrid system is a battery pack. We're taking a battery pack architecture to certification so that once that battery technology comes along, we can we can get rid of the generator and just fly all electric. So we feel like we have a seamless program. It's just not what some people who are looking for the magic bullet want to see. And they can't, they're like, well, but the science doesn't matter. We need to go this way. And I think that's what you're talking about. And that's, again, what I'm most proud about Vertigo Aero for. Yeah. Richard, what's another question for Eric here? I think it would be down to timing. So we know the revolution in mobility is coming. And the next question is when and how do we make it faster? Yeah, that's a great question. So you can fly an electric aircraft. I flew my first one in, I think it was 2014. That was a long time ago and I haven't flown one since. So it's taken a lot longer to, to actually happen than I anticipated. And that may be the first les lesson in innovation is that it's going to take you five times as long as you think. But I think now that we're moving so fast and we have so much money pouring into the industry, I think that we're going to start seeing aspects of this and people will be able to go and seek out and find an aircraft they can fly in in a two years. And in three years, there'll be some commercial applications, very limited. Four years, five years, we're going to start seeing regular tourism, transportation in specific areas, probably on fixed routes and some charters that are going to odd places. But it's not going to be until the 100th anniversary of my grandfather's flight, shameless plug, the centennial of the New York to Paris flight, that we're really going to start seeing robust commercial operations happening around cities. And even then, it's, it's not going to alleviate all the traffic jams. It's going to allow some people who can do this 
to escape that traffic. So I remember waiting for three hours to get from LaGuardia to Midtown Manhattan. It should have taken 20 minutes. That sort of thing could be shortcut in about seven years. You know, let's put another plug for the foundation out there, for the Lindbergh Foundation. Talk about the Innovation Forum, if you will. Absolutely. You know, I think we... But we're in this mess because we, we're constantly sort of asking ourselves, how do we make things better? And I think that's something that my grandfather did. He, he, he had an interesting personality. Maybe some would say he was on the spectrum, but he was always, always thinking about how to improve what he had, whether it was a flashlight and he was working under his car and he would set the flashlight down and it would roll away. He thought, I need a flat spot on that flashlight, but I can just set it there so it won't roll away. Reading that from his early journals, it just made me realize how similar we are in that we're we're constantly thinking about how do we make things better? How do we how do we make an aircraft better, cheaper, faster, lighter, more sustainable, quieter? So the foundation is constantly asking ourselves that. And we have a program called the Lindbergh Innovation Forum that we run at air shows and other events like AIAA, where we bring leaders together and to give talks about those sort of what we call bleeding edge technologies, the the hypersonic flight and what that's going to take. And we had Richard speak on AI and aviation. And we had Air Shepherd speak about using drones beyond visual line of sight and at night to stop the rhino and elephant poaching. So we often use this filter of not just innovation, but balance between technology, advancing technology and preservation of the environment to do our programs and to talk about people because technology for the sake of technology is really not worth that much if it doesn't help our quality of life or the quality of life on earth. And so that's the filter that we use, which was really my grandparents' ethos gained after flying around the country and the world, indeed, from the 1927 to the 30s, 1940s and 50s. They really saw from that overview effect all the changes that were happening on the planet. And even just the visual changes were not always good for the planet and that we could harm ourselves. So, so that's what we do. We, we sort of ask ourselves these questions. The Forever Flight Alliance is a new program that we're working, building out of this, that is really looking at how do we, how do we make aviation clean and green and sustainable? And, and we're partnering with the XPRIZE Foundation on this to work in tandem with the, the Elon Musk's Carbon Removal Prize to, to how do we make aviation sustainable? As I mentioned, all those fixed assets, how do we continue to fly for our quality of life, but make it sustainable for the planet? That's exciting. Well, we, we've covered quite a bit of ground here today. Richard, what's what, what do you want to leave with? And we'll, we'll end off with Eric here. So I haven't had a chance to talk to Eric since I got back until our podcast. So I have to tell you, I ran into someone who is flying or knows the person who's flying and Morrow's biplane that she learned to fly in. And, and so we came across that. And then one of my pilots came across a pressing of the first interview of your grandfather after he landed. It has been like a Lindbergh weekend. I mean, there's pictures <laughs> of Anne Morrow's pipeline. <laughs> so it was fascinating. And, and, and every, it's still top of mind. It's, it was so cool. They said, you know, you know, Eric, can you get this information? No, it's, it's, and, and I'm in the Bahamas and the Exuma chain in sort of a beautiful place, but in the middle of nowhere. And these connections are happening. So it's a pretty small aviation world. And, and, and actually, it kind of revolves around you, believe it or not. So life is good. 
So, well, fun. that's that's fantastic. Yep. Thank you, Richard. Yep. It's it's yep. an honor to know you and to be friends with you. You are one of those truly extraordinary human beings. That business aside, I am proud to have as a friend. I, I feel the same. It's mutual admiration society we have here. <laughs> <laughs> too fun. Too fun. Well, uh, Eric, let's start with what are the websites? What are the social media accounts? Where where should people be going to find out more about all this fun stuff you've shared? Well, vertigoarrow.com is V-E-R-D-O-G-O-A-E-R-O.com. And you can see our propulsion systems. You can see some of our customers, press releases, et cetera. Lindberghfoundation.org or Lindberg.arrow. We just got a new one. Lindberg.arrow. That's L-I-N-D-B-E-R-G-H. There's a useless dangling H on the end of my name. Long story behind that, which I won't tell. You so you can find out more about the foundation. And we are, we are after sort of COVID hit, we're really hitting all strides. We've sort of put the innovation forum on hold until the next big air show comes on and we're working on a book project and this forever flight program. So, so we're, we're super, super excited about the hundredth anniversary coming up and how we can, just like we did with XPRIZE, create as big a lever as possible to create positive change on the planet using that unique centennial. Anything else? I guess I, you can, you can look at my social media. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm really trying hard to avoid Facebook these days. I just, you know, I got good at it, but I really don't like it. Instagram, I I got an update or something and it won't take my my old password. So I'm avoiding that one as well. Sort of a form of social protest. I'm sure I'll be back. That's great. Anything else? I guess ericlindberg.com. If you are interested, I kind of organize my life in, in three areas, aerospace, as you can tell art. I like to make furniture and sculptures and, and some of those sculptures have led to my greatest adventures like flying across the Atlantic. It came from building a, you know, a little airplane. And, and I also have reached an age in my life where it's super important that I have adventures and I live. I, I guess what your listeners don't know about me is that I, I was a state champion gymnast when I was young. I climbed and skied Mount Rainier, was kind of an extreme guy, water skiing, whatever it was, I could do it. And I lost that. I got rheumatoid arthritis when I turned 21 and by age 30, I couldn't walk had both my knees replaced and lots of other sort of medical carpentry done on my body. And I started taking a breakthrough biotechnology drug that gave me another chance at life. And with XPRIZE, I sort of built myself back up again. And I'm, I, so I organized my life around having adventures, mostly skiing and mountain biking while I am still of semi sound, while all my parts are still flying in loose formation. Let's use that metaphor. (laughs) I love it. Well, maybe we can finish with one of my favorite questions, which is, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? You know, I think maybe I'll cheat and give you two. One was to be at peace with myself. So have compassion for myself because I think too much and sometimes I think too much about me. (laughs) So relaxing a little bit and letting that, getting past that and being comfortable with my my self-talk been one of the best pieces of advice I've I've ever received. And the other one is to commit to make the plunge and don't do it lightly because I've done that too. And it doesn't always turn out well, but you've got to commit and commit with all of your resources, all of your energy and and know that this is something you're going to do as long as it takes um, because it's going to get hard. (laughs) 
It always does. doesn't matter what it is. It's going to get hard. And if it doesn't seem like a job, it's going to become a job. And you have to be able to get through that. So when you commit yourself, you will see it through. You will make it. That's great. So I stole, I, I stole an extra one. Sorry. No, I love it. Well, I appreciate you both doing this. This is, this is great for me. Hopefully, hopefully somebody else likes it. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> well, I like to have fun and ha- hanging around with guys like you. It's easy to have fun. Well, thanks again, both of you for doing this. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care.